This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which publishes loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One of the best ways you can support and sustain Haymarket's publishing is by becoming a member of a Haymarket Book Club. As a book club member, your monthly subscription helps Haymarket continue to publish books for changing the world, and you receive one or more books per month delivered straight to your door, as well as a standing 50% discount off all titles on the Haymarket website. Book club members receive as many as 50 books per year, and book club subscriptions begin at just $10 a month. Learn more about Haymarket's book clubs and join hundreds of subscribers helping to ensure the future of radical publishing at haymarketbooks.org. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is the second of my two-part interview with Giuliano Garavini, the author of The Rise and Fall of OPEC in the 20th Century. In part one of this interview, which you should really listen to first if you haven't yet, we covered the decades-long history leading to the foundation of the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries in 1960. This episode covers the height of OPEC's power in the 1970s, power they exercised to send oil prices soaring. This was the so-called oil shock from the perspective of wealthy industrialized oil importing countries. But from the vantage point of oil exporting nations, Garavini writes, it was an oil revolution. We then follow OPEC's fall in the face of the global forces of neoliberal and neocolonial reaction in the 1980s, all the way through our present fossil-fueled climate crisis. Before we get started... You probably know that we put out every episode of this podcast for free with no paywall because we want everyone to listen to every episode of The Dig, regardless of your ability to pay. We can only do that, though, because listeners like you, if this is you, who can afford to contribute, voluntarily do so at patreon.com slash the dig. And indeed, many of you listening can afford to pay 5 or $10 a month. And so if that is you, and this is the 10th or 100th or 200th time you've heard me make this request, you know who you are. Please, chip in now. We will also send you Dig Swag in the mail. Any U.S.-based contributor who gives at least $10 a month gets a book or books in the mail or a wonderful-looking, beautifully designed Dig tote bag or mug emblazoned with our weird logo. A contribution of any amount by listeners everywhere gets you a copy of our newsletter, our excellent newsletter, sent to your email inbox. Please take a quick moment now and contribute what you can. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. There is a link in the show notes. Please hit pause and click it. Okay. Here's Giuliano Garavini, who teaches international history at Roma Tre University in Rome. He's the author of After Empires, European Integration, Decolonization, and the Challenge from the Global South, 1957 to 1986. The co-editor of Oil Shock, the 1973 Crisis and its Economic Legacy, and of Countershock, the Oil Counter-Revolution of the 1980s. And he's the author of the book we're discussing today. The Rise and Fall of OPEC in the 20th Century. 
Giuliano Garavini. Welcome back to The Dig. We left off last time discussing the foundation of OPEC in 1960, founded by five countries, Iraq, Iran, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, and Venezuela. Let's start our discussion today by talking about what issues were on the table for OPEC, because they were a lot of different issues and different OPEC member countries were on different sides of these issues. There was the question of increasing the revenue take, setting prices, increased participation in terms of control over production and distribution, nationalization, and ultimately setting and coordinating production levels. How in OPEC's early years did its radical and moderate camps develop around these various issues? And what, respectively, did the moderates and radicals want? And lastly, what accounts for various countries' approaches? Was it simply a reflection of the political ideology of their leadership? The key ideas that were the premise for the creation of OPEC were basically the ideas of Juan Pablo Perez Alfonso, who was the oil minister uh, of Venezuela. And Alfonso eventually wrote a book called The Oil Pentagon, whereby he kind of formalized these key five concepts that were bit at the core of the creation of, of OPEC. First of all, reasonable participation. What, what does it mean? You know, to get a reasonable share of the revenues that are generated by oil production. Second, conservation of hydrocarbons. What does conservation mean? Basically making sure that production is not so quick to deplete the reserves in too short a time. Actually, the idea was that they should never get depleted. Uh, then there was the creation of a national oil company, 1959-1960, when OPEC was created. None, I think, of the people that were involved actually thought in terms of nationalizing the consortiums. Uh, that was, uh, you know, maybe a, an, an objective for a very distant future, but nobody really thought that was the way. But the idea was to create a national oil company that would, in a way, parallel the international oil companies that were present, enable local uh, elites to know about the oil industry and eventually participate in this consortium. But the idea was not just taking over once and for all the oil sector. And obviously the creation of OPEC was one of the angles of the oil pentagon, meaning uh, Venezuela was afraid that these countries of the Middle East would compete with Venezuelan oil once the U.S. market you know, became smaller. And so there was an idea to find an agreement. And then there was a policy for Venezuela that was not necessarily the way people in other OPEC countries thought. It, it was a policy called no more concessions. The idea was with already allowed foreign companies to have many concessions in very productive areas. Let's stop it <laughs> at that point. There's no need to, 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 to give them more successions. When OPEC was born, these were a bit the policy ideas of the organization. But very soon, uh, 
I would say a split emerged since you referenced, uh, you know, what was the competition between, let's say, the radicals and the more conservatives within OPEC at the beginning. A split emerged on a number of teams, but the first team was that the so-called radicals, so countries such as uh, Venezuela itself, Iraq uh, at the time, Indonesia, thought that OPEC needed to act by legislation, meaning if there are new laws that, especially on fiscal terms, that these countries want to implement, they don't have to negotiate them with the international oil companies because uh, every country is sovereign. So the idea was, you know, let's change this relationship and uh, gain more revenues the technical way they wanted to do so was through a technical thing that's called the royalty expensing. There's no need here to explain well what it is. Uh, so this gave a greater share of the oil revenues by taxing more the international oil companies. But we don't have to discuss it with them. I mean, we can discuss it with them, but we don't have to negotiate. We don't have to have their approval. On that, there was a very significant split and by 1964, basically the Iranians who were the head of the most conservative front had menaced you know, to split OPEC over this. They were totally against uh, uh, legislating. They were in favor of dialogue. And it seems that one of the reasons why Iran was so moderate is that the Shah had been given the guarantee of a massive increase of Iranian oil production had Iran come to terms with, with the international oil companies. The key idea of the Venezuelans, which was actually also to decide, to collectively decide on oil production, to create a global pro-rationing agency, that idea was not really shared by the rest of OPEC countries, except maybe at the beginning by Saudi Arabia with Al-Tariqi, but Al-Tariqi was soon fired from his position and substituted with uh, Zaki Yamani, who became the Saudi minister of oil for a very long time. And that's after Faisal took over from Saad. Yes. And uh, that's you know, at the time, there were very few people in Saudi Arabia with, with, with an education, let alone a university education. Yamani had a training in the United States. So obviously, from that moment, if you will, a legend started that Yamani would be uh, obviously more moderate than, than, than Al-Tariqi, the Red Sheikh, who eventually became a symbol of Arab nationalism, especially uh, uh, in, in the oil sector. And Tariqi very soon uh, came uh, to, at least in the middle of the 60s, came to vocally uh, endorse uh, nationalizations, while Yamani became, in a way, the symbol of a more moderate oil policy, one that looked more favorably at uh, a relationship with, with, with foreign capital, with, uh, with international companies, with, with the United States. But history would prove that Yamani was not such a simple, uh, simple figure. Uh, he was not simply you know, a stooge of the, of the United States. Uh, it was a national oil policy, but obviously less, uh, you know, vocally radical and possibly less 
pan-Arab or Arab nationalist than the one of Tariki. A number of countries joined OPEC after the founding five. Qatar, before it was even fully independent. Indonesia, first under the revolutionary Sukarno and then continuing under the reactionary Suharto. Libya, most consequently after Gaddafi took power in 69. Revolutionary Algeria, independent Nigeria, and also Ecuador, and in later years, other countries too. But from reading your book, it seems that of the late joiners, that that Algeria was arguably the most consequential. You write, quote, After having failed in the 1950s to separate the Sahara from Algeria, the French would not have agreed to quit Algeria without having previously secured control over its hydrocarbons resources. What role did oil play in French colonial Algeria in securing independence and then in the post-colonial state, particularly after this pivotal moment when, when the FLN leader and President Ahmed Benbella was overthrown by his defense minister, Ware Boumediene? in 1965, because Boumediene was was in the West, I think, initially seen as this potentially restorationist or reactionary figure along the lines of Suharto in Indonesia. But he ended up being an ardent third worldist, bringing on Al-Tariki, the former Saudi petroleum minister, as an advisor, and really radicalizing the whole developmentalist import substitution model to put the nationalization of natural resources at its core. How did Algeria become such a radical force with the OPEC? And, and what does Algeria's role with the OPEC reveal about OPEC's place in this larger, radical, third-worldist, nationalist politics of that era? So Algeria becomes independent in 1962 after uh, years of uh, revolutionary struggle by the FLN and even though the independence of Algeria was the result of years uh, of revolutionary struggle, uh, the French allowed, in, in a way, accepted independence only after having secured basically a monopoly position on uh, uh, Algerian uh, oil and gas. Having said so, the difference between Algerian leaders and the leaders of most of the other OPEC countries is that they had come to power through a liberation struggle. They had played the game of very high diplomacy, gaining widespread acceptance uh, even before Algerian independence. So the FLN was represented in Bandung, participated to, to UN politics. So these, the FLN came to power with a very strong legitimacy, internal legitimacy and international legitimacy. Uh, so even though the French were still in control of the oil industry, from the very beginning, Algerians were convinced that they, their oil policy was one of direct control, national control over local hydrocarbons. Basically, that it would only be a matter of time before they would get full control and potentially nationalize first natural gas and then oil. So this is also the reason, interesting, why the FLN at the beginning did not endorse 
participation to, to OPEC. They viewed OPEC as not sufficiently revolutionary for them to participate to the organization. They viewed OPEC as an, an organization that was only trying to you know, get some more money from the international companies, but not, was not really willing to take over the oil sector. You know, they might have been wrong or right, but that was their, uh, their, their analysis. And, you know, the foreign policy of Algeria was a very anti-imperialist foreign policy. And to the point that the episode you mentioned, so the, in a way, the coup d'etat of Boumedien came just a few days before Algeria was to convene the second Bandung, so the second uh, Afro-Asian conference uh, of countries that were you know, strongly anti-imperialist and were willing to actively oppose uh, what they considered uh, Western imperialism. So Boumedien comes to power and it seems that, you know, that was in the, the example of, of Indonesia, so of, of a progressive, if you will, anti-colonial leader that had been uh, overtaken by a military pro-US uh, leader, Suarto, that Algeria would do basically what was happening in, in Algeria was more or less the same thing. Uh, but the problem is that that was not what was happening in Algeria. The, the, what was happening in Algeria is that there was an internal difference on the ways to develop the economy, meaning some people thought in terms of more state-driven industrialization, such as Boumedien, uh, head of the military. Some people thought more in terms of cooperative or a cooperative economy, such as the people uh, closer to Bembella. So there was an internal struggle over what direction internally the economy and the politics to, to a certain extent of, of, of the country would take. But from the point of view of Algeria's role internationally, Boumedien didn't change too much the, the course of Algeria's foreign policy and I would say the ultimate objectives of taking direct control of natural resources. So why did Algeria decide to enter OPEC in 1969 and not before? Basically because by 1968, OPEC had to a certain extent changed and radicalized and formalized a new economic policy that should drive principles, new economic policy principles that should drive OPEC countries. And in, in, at the end of 1968, OPEC produced maybe what is its most important policy document until this day. It, it was called the Petroleum Policy Statement. And these points uh, that should have been applied by all OPEC countries were things such as national oil companies had to be created wherever possible in OPEC countries so that these national oil companies should directly explore and produce oil. The statement argued that these national companies and governments should take the highest possible participation in the consortiums 
at least 20%. So they should actually enter the consortium, so become owners uh, of their own oil. They should uh, do so unilaterally without necessarily negotiating with, with, with these international oil companies. They should obtain uh, the release from foreign op- operators of all territories where these foreign operators were not actually drilling, were not actually doing their job. You know, these concessions, as, uh, as we said in Iran, they cover the entire territory of Iran. But obviously, the, co- the, the, the companies focus on certain areas where it was easier to, to produce. So the argument was, in those areas of the countries where companies are not doing their job, revert these areas to, 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 to the governments. Policy statements said that all taxes should be based on posted prices, which is a complex issue, and also that there should be specific conservation practices should be enacted in the oil field. So in a way, it was an effort to preserve. But so the Algerians, once they heard that OPEC was endorsing direct participation, once they heard that the objective was to create national companies, said, okay, now OPEC is prepared to move beyond endorsing uh, increasing taxes and is prepared to help governments take direct control, so we're going to enter. And they did enter OPEC in in 69 and eventually played uh, a very significant role from the very beginning in, in the organization. One of the most surprising things I learned in your book was the role in this third worldist milieu played by the Italian state-owned oil company ENI, which was one of the so-called independents, which were either private companies producing oil in the U.S., which we discussed last episode, or in ENI's case, state-owned companies in industrialized nations that neither possessed oil resources of their own nor had an oil major company of their own. Where did the independence fit into the global oil economy? And what accounts for ENI's remarkable story of going in this staunchly third worldist direction, positioning itself as an ally of decolonizing oil exporting countries? Yeah. So w- when when we speak about independence, uh, we're, we're normally talking at the beginning, at least, of these uh, smaller uh, U.S. producers that felt, in a way, menaced by big oil, and weirdly, these independent oil producers in the U.S. they fought big oil not because of what big oil companies were doing in the United States, but they fought big oil for what big oil was doing outside the United States because they said, "Look, these companies are going all over the world." They are paying very low taxes to to the U.S. citizens because, in fact, they could, uh, you know, basically they paid no taxes to, to U.S. governments until the 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 nineteen seventies, and they are selling cheap oil in the United States and they are threatening threatening our position. So, in a way, weirdly, these independents in the U.S. looked favorably at the beginning to to the creation of of OPEC, because that would possibly help drive up the the price price of oil. Then there are the independents such as the ones you mentioned. So these state oil companies in 
uh, in oil consuming countries, the most important of which are probably ENI that was created in 1953 and the French state-owned companies, ELF being the name of them. So why is ENI even in, the, in a book uh, 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 of OPEC? And actually the founder of ENI, Enrico Mattei, is, uh, is remembered frankly to this day in many of these oil producing countries because ENI in a way has to do with the story of Enrico Mattei. Enrico Mattei was a weird oil tycoon because he participated to the struggle against fascism. So he joined the resistance. So he went to fight in the mountains uh, against fascists uh, in Italy. Even though he was a Christian uh, Democrat, he was part of that part of the Christian democracy that saw in a greater role of the state in, in the economy the only way to allow industrial development and even a rebalancing between the various areas of the country. So the creation of ENI was part of this project to create a state entity that would help, would contribute both to the industrial growth of the country through cheap energy and to rebalance the, the, the economic conditions of the country because ENI would help invest, for example, in the mezzogiorno, which was among the poorest uh, areas of the country. So with that approach, Mattei, in a way, applied the same kind of approach to international relations, international oil relations. So what he argued is, ENI is a company with very little oil, has a lot of gas in Italy, but has no oil. We uh, in Italy basically are totally dependent from importing oil from these oil majors. So let's try to see if there is a possibility to move beyond these oil majors and directly negotiate with the governments that own these uh, natural resources. And the way to do so for Mattei, which was also the reason why he became very famous, is that in 1957, he proposed this new model to the Shah of Iran, and which you could call the Mattei model, if you will. And he said, allow us to look for oil in Iran, and we will create an oil company based in Iran that is 50% owned by, by the Iranian national oil company, so by the Iranian state, and 50% owned by us, which in a way demolished the way, if it worked, it would have demolished the way the consortiums worked because these consortiums were totally owned by international oil companies. And Mattei was saying to the local governments, you know, there's a new model that you could implement. It's a model where oil production is managed 50% by foreign companies and 50% by yourself so that you will gain te technological capability. You will learn how the industry works. You will have a lot of uh, high ranking uh, technocrats in, in the highest position of the, of the company. And on the 50% of oil that we own, ENI owns, we'll pay 50% tax 
as the rest of uh, of the companies. So in the end, the the local governments would get seventy five percent of the oil revenues of oil instead of only fifty. Plus, they would get a, a direct say in the oil industry. So Matteo was not very successful from the point of view of actually finding big quantities of oil. He 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 never found the biggest reservoirs were under the control of what he called the Seven Sisters. But this model stuck. I mean, it was something that was interesting for, for, for many oil producers, even because it was a company as any who had already developed natural gas sector in Italy, proved that he could do without you know, the help of these international oil companies. So it sets a model of something that could actually be done. When OPEC negotiated the first royalty expensing, the thing I mentioned before, the, the first royal expensing agreement or try to negotiate that agreement with, with, with the international oil companies, the research center of ENI was a consultant for OPEC. Actually, they helped them uh, to negotiate this deal. ENI did not always maintain this if you will, uh, anti-colonial position throughout its history. But at at least at the beginning, that was the novelty it presented. And at least until Matai was killed in a mysterious and hotly disputed plane crash. Yeah, he was killed uh, in 1962. So directly before the independence of Algeria. And uh, we know because there's been inquiries that he has been, uh, there was a bomb planted on his plane. Nobody to this day knows uh, who it was. There is a controversy. So there are the theory that in some ways that happened because it was linked to, to US oil majors who saw their uh, interests uh, weakened by, by the role ENI played. ENI had also started uh, buying uh, Soviet oil. So, I mean, imagine the most terrible things you could do. He was doing them. Uh, there's another theory that, is, that says it's the French because Matei was actually into negotiations with, with the FLN to buy Algerian uh, natural gas. And obviously the French were not happy even about this. Also, Matei had severely financed the FLN. So imagine a country that was a member of the European community financing uh, armed groups uh, that were fighting against uh, another country that was a member of the European community. And then there's a third hypothesis that basically links the to Italian mafia, which is <laughs> there's always a theory that uh, so it's a matter of local politics and uh, power inside Italy more than something that has to do with the with these international clashes. Let's turn to when OPEC truly came into its own and helped send oil prices through the roof. It was in 1973 that oil prices truly accelerated, the, the so-called oil shock or what you instead call the oil revolution. What role did the oil majors, the oil producing countries, and other various actors and factors all play? You write that the Yom Kippur War, that that pit Israel against Egypt and Syria, and Arab oil exporting countries imposition of an oil embargo on the U.S. in response, that this was not what caused the oil shock. Though that is, I think, often 
misunderstood as having been responsible. So what did send prices skyrocketing? And what role did OPEC and the oil embargo play? And then lastly, again, why do you call it an oil revolution rather than an oil shock? Let me start from your last question. Is it an oil revolution uh, or is it an oil shock? That's just a matter of perspectives in the sense that it's the same thing, except it was a shock to the consumers and uh, it was a revolution to the producers. So since my book is a book that basically looks at the world through the lens of producers, to, to talk about an oil revolution is more relevant than to talk about a shock. Also, because how can it be a shock if it's actually a decision they took? <laughs> so, so, so that's the bottom line. When we refer to shock, what are we talking about? So basically, we, we are talking about this massive increase uh, in the price of a barrel of oil in 1973, in October, and then once again in December 1973. And this massive increase was, you know, it's one of the most important uh, economic uh, events in the 20th century. So in every, in every history book, there is a reference to 1973. Uh, if you speak to your grandparents or parents, everybody knows it existed. You know, it's, it's so significant in a way, an episode. And it is so significant because it's the product of important structural uh, events, important structural processes. From my point of view, these processes are basically three. Uh, first of all, uh, the fact that it appeared at least that this huge expansion of industrial production and of consumerism driven by unlimited amounts of uh, uh, energy resources and oil in particular, it seemed that it could not go on forever because, for example, oil production in Venezuela that in 1969 was still the largest oil exporter in the world and oil production in the United States that until 1969-70 was the largest oil producer in the world, still is today, uh, had peaked. It, it, it appeared they could not increase production anymore. So, so there was a, there was actually not only the fear, <laughs> but there was a practical uh, uh, demonstration that two countries in which oil production had started so long, such a long time ago, uh, and that were so crucial to the entire oil industry, could not produce any more oil. And actually, production started declining at the beginning of the 1970s. So there was actually this fear and the practical existence, at least in oil, of limits to the, to the possibility of increasing resource production. Second, there was this wave, and here is where you know, the, the, the decolonization uh, comes in, there, were, there was this massive uh, uh, 
wave of uh, radicalization of, of the countries that had uh, gained their political independence and had, uh, you know, were willing to even gain their economic independence. And a number of countries actually had moved into the direction of nationalizing uh, their oil sector within OPEC. The first was Algeria to do so. It nationalized oil in 1971. So there was this structural process, if you will, of radicalization in terms of gaining direct control and practically manifesting, if you will, uh, sovereignty over natural resources that, that was very strong. There was this very strong pressure. And third, even though it's rarely linked with the oil shock, the 1960s and early 70s is, is, is a time of massive protagonism of, lab, of the labor movement in industrial countries from... Uh, you know, from, from the United States to, 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 to Western Europe, possibly even more in Western Europe, where, uh, uh, in a way, students and workers movement acted together, uh, to, to challenge politics as it was until then. And it was a, it was a time where, you know, legislation changed in favor of workers, but also wages. It was a, a time of massive wage increases. And this, wave of strikes and of massive wage increases led to an enormous boost uh, in, in consumption, including of oil, exactly at the time where uh, uh, it, it seemed to be more difficult to increase production, both due to the, to, you know, to limits to natural resource extraction, but also to this increasing political activism of, uh, uh, of natural resource exporting countries. So these three if you will, historical uh, phenomenon, which, you know, you could define as, as, as the end of a development model, were the background of, uh, of what led to pressures to, to, to increase low prices. Think that at the end of the 60s, oil prices were lower in real terms than when, where, where they were in the Second World War. So we came from a phase of massive expansion of oil production with, with, with lowering prices, which could not go on forever. And then all these new phenomenons of the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s, endanger uh, uh, that model. This is also why I would be very prudent in attributing a role to the embargo, which was a relatively limited event that concerned Arab oil producers and not the rest of OPEC countries. For example, uh, Iran increased uh, its oil production instead of bringing it down. Iraq didn't even participate to the embargo. Venezuela even increased its production. So it wasn't so important from the point of view of increasing prices. It was a decision taken by OPEC, so the, the most of the oil exporting countries, in this context in which producers have gained such a strong uh, power, uh, the market has changed from a consumer's market to a producer's uh, market. So as I said, it was an OPEC decision. First in October 73, they decide for the first time unilaterally, so without any common decision with the, with, with the companies, to increase the, po to actually to double the posted price of oil. 
And then in December, they decide to double it once again, December 1973. So uh, the, the book is based uh, on one key source, if you will, which are the minutes of the OPEC conferences. So the OPEC conference is the place where the decisions were taken. So the members of the OPEC conference are normally the oil ministers or the ministers of the economy of the different uh, members of OPEC. So when a decision is taken in the OPEC conference, it has to be taken by unanimity and then it has to be implemented. And the key figure in December 1973 who actually played the role of deciding that particular price of, of oil, which was 11.60 something dollars per barrel of posted price, was the Iranian delegate, uh, Jamshida Musegal. Of the Shah, which is so ironic because he, the Shah was brought into complete power due to a UK-US orchestrated coup in response to Iran nationalizing its oil. Yeah, you would expect in a way that the, 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 you would expect Iran being so close to the consortium of Anglo-American companies that produce oil in Iran, you would have expected a moderate position. But as I said, the tide of history in, uh, in the 70s, which matters, was a tide of history that was, uh, you know, there, there was a lot of pressure from public opinions uh, to, to, to stand up uh, against uh, Western uh, powers, in particular the United States, the war in Vietnam, the end of Bretton Woods, the, uh, the potential defeat uh, in the war in Vietnam, the idea that the U.S. played in, in a way a regressive role uh, in many countries. So, so Iran weirdly <laughs> participated to, to, to that kind of tide of history, not necessarily having an anti-American position, but at least stating uh, its willingness to act autonomously. And the Shah thought that Iran would become the fifth most uh, uh, industrialized country in the world uh, in, in five years. Anyway, just to quote uh, Amuzegar, when he had to explain why OPEC decided to increase prices to that particular level, he said, basically, you know, that that is because this is the price of possible alternatives to oil. So we, are, we want to favor uh, a reduction in consumption of oil and uh, investments in alternatives because basically at the time everybody was convinced uh, there was not enough oil. So this is Amuzegar talking, I'm not quoting him. When passing through the famous cities of the highly industrialized countries of the world, and he thought all of them, that is the ministers, had visited these places, they had no doubt found that the skyscrapers were completely sealed off, it being impossible to open a window. In addition to central heating and air conditioning, there was usually a 24-hour ventilation system. Why, he asked because it was cheaper to use oil as a fuel to provide 24 hours ventilation than to have doorknobs, open windows, etc. This, he said, was what the affluent societies of the world did if provided with cheap oil. And this was what had indeed happened over the last 25 years. 
They were now awaiting that humanity and posterity would stop the waste of this precious premium natural resource. So I'm not, I'm not arguing that, you know, obviously this is also an argument to justify the increase in the prices of oil. But these were things that, you know, these ministers were, 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 were saying among themselves, which I think is, you know, probably not ex- exactly the things that oil ministers are, of OPEC are saying behind closed doors uh, today. But it tells you a bit of the atmosphere of those times. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by N Plus One Magazine, which features some of the most exciting and stylish political writing, essays, fiction, and cultural criticism on the left today. One piece that might interest Dig listeners is Gabriel Winant's J.D. Vance Changes the Subject, published in the magazine's brand new spring issue. In the piece, Winant, a labor historian, organizer, and previous Dig guest, examines J.D. Vance in the psychoanalytic repression that underpins his political project. Through a close reading of Vance's career and especially his memoir, Hillbilly Elegy, Wynant argues that Vance is bent on an ethic of culpability, blaming and punishing the working class for the trauma of his own childhood. Looking to political figures like John Fetterman in Pennsylvania and Brandon Johnson in Chicago, Wynant asks, how can the left build solidarity out of the real crises of deindustrialization that Vance has weaponized? Dig listeners can take 25% off a year-long print subscription to N Plus One at nplusonemag.com slash the dig. Enter the dig, that's one word, the dig, at checkout to get three issues delivered in the mail, plus full access to 18 years of paywalled essays, reviews, and fiction, all for less than $3 a month. That's nplusonemag.com slash the dig. What role did the oil revolution play in causing the profound economic crises of the 1970s that that ended up posing such a fundamental challenge to the Fordist New Deal order? And what role did the oil revolution play more broadly in challenging and transforming the politics and even popular consciousness of wealthy oil consuming countries? Because you write that the early 1970s, quote, marked the passage from the optimism of unlimited growth to concerns about the limits to growth, from faith in unlimited natural resource supplies to the widespread fears of resource exhaustion, from cheap to expensive oil. Obviously, the oil shock played out in different ways. The most obvious of these ways is that since basically what we're looking at is you know the the massive flow of financial resources from consuming countries to producing countries so uh that generated on the very short term uh for the first time uh after the second world war uh, an economic recession so that's obviously, you know, weigh heavily on the politics of those times. And governments of the West 
reacted in, in the most various ways to this, trying to coordinate the, their economic policies through new multilateral organizations, such as uh, the International Energy Agency, which was created in, in 1974, uh, then the G7 that was created in 1975. So you look and look, you can look at these key economic institutions as a as the product of a reaction to the kind of changes that OPEC had introduced, and that the the cooperation between OPEC and a number of developing countries was producing in, in terms of fears of these Western elites. In a way, what was surprising to me and still is surprising to me is that even though the U.S. government actually controlled the price of oil in the United States, but eventually, you know, led not actually to increasing the price of gasoline. And that's interesting because those were controlled by the state at the time, but they led to these lines at the gas stations. Because by trying to control prices, what happened is that eventually there were problems in the supply of oil in the United States. So that in, in, the, in the U.S. memory of, of those years, these lines at the gas stations are, you know, they're part of what I think is a, a dark memory the, of those years. And possibly the Arab sheiks are, are, are considered the origins of these problems for, for the middle class of the United States that needs to drive its car to go to work. But weirdly, that's not always the case, certainly in Western Europe. That's also why the old shock is so remembered to this day. Uh, it introduced things that eventually stayed with the lives of ordinary citizens from 1973 to today. One is carless Sundays. So these Sundays where people could actually move around the city without any cars. Uh, at the beginning, that was not, you know, it was a shock, but it was not necessarily a negative shock. You see images of uh, these groups uh, of Dutch young guys walking on the highways with their horses or driving bicycles, uh, you know, Amsterdam became these, it was full of cars, Amsterdam, until the 19th. You couldn't move around the city because of traffic jams. Now, if you go to Amsterdam, there's not even one car. So these are things that started uh, then uh, as a reaction to the old shock. You know, the, the, the British even introduced the four days working week to, to reduce energy consumption. Some of these things were actually witnessed, perceived as positive uh, changes, uh, even in a scenario where there was uh, an economic uh, uh, recession. So the shock, you know, generated changes in policies, at least short term. It did have an impact, uh, at least short term, on economic growth that was countered to normally through more state expenditures. And it did have an impact on inflation. But this is a tricky issue. As, as we know today, uh, you know, there's this massive debate on inflation today, which in a certain way echoes the debate of, of, of the 1970s. So is inflation driven by the increase in energy prices? And certainly uh, it is in many ways in Western Europe. But also inflation was a product of a, of a social struggle between you know, profits and wages. 
And at the time, and this in Western Europe, it was difficult to increase profits because wages were indexed to inflation. So the, the oil price increases contributed at least in some ways to this movement, inflationary pressures, uh, increasing inflationary pressures. But my sense is that these inflationary pressures affected mostly private capitalist company than they did uh, the ordinary workers. Because at the time, uh, uh, you know, wages were indexed. And let's not forget that most energy prices, meaning the bills for electricity and the bills for natural gas, they were fixed by the governments. Did countries like Saudi Arabia and Algeria, did, did they make good on promises to use high oil revenues to modernize, industrialize, diversify their economy, lift their masses out of poverty, get them education and health care? Or did those revenues often lead to more consumption for the already well-to-do growing military budgets and the concentration of authoritarian power in, in the hands of leaders like Saddam Hussein? Yeah, so so th- this is obviously another of the great debates about the, the, the shock and its consequences. Uh, a lot of the narrative goes in the sense of saying these oil exporting countries were able to attract a massive quantity of so-called petrodollars. These petrodollars were either used to buy weapons <laughs> or were reinvested in, in Western banks, be that uh, European uh, or, uh, or American banks. And these banks used that money to finance debt uh, uh, in third world uh, uh, non-oil exporting countries. So basically the idea is that eventually this massive increase in oil prices translated into debts of third world non-oil producing countries and then eventually there, you know, to the debt crisis and to the sort of financialization. There are elements, it's undeniable that, 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 that some of that rent was reinvested not only in, in, in Western banks, but also in the public debt, for example, of the United States in so-called safe financial assets. But a lot of that uh, was actually used for internal uh, so-called developmental uh, uh, projects. The Algerians called this strategy of the strategy of industrializing industries. So let's invest a massive amount of money uh, let's say in the petrochemical sector, because that would uh, increase employment. Uh, we need to increase employment because there's a lot of young people in the cities and they have to work somewhere, otherwise there'll be a revolution. And if you build these big industries, then that will lead to you know, the proliferation of a number of smaller and medium enterprises that were served these big industries. And this sort of sort of echoes the the early Venezuelan concept of, of sowing the oil. That, that, that's, that's the interesting thing. When that term was invented, sowing the oil, and it was invented in 1936, the idea was literally sowing the oil, meaning let, let's get the, the revenues from oil and let's invest it in the agricultural sector. Because in a way, 
what is the most, uh, what's the only sector of the economy on which a country such as Venezuela can thrive from is the uh, agricultural sector. In the Algerian version, uh, it's, it's, you know, let's create big state enterprises because that's the way where we uh, counterbalance dependence from industrialized countries and we industrialize our, ourselves and we create a more uh, equal world. But this, in a way, was also the way of thinking of the Saudis which did amazing things, things that I've not studied in detail, but for example, they invested uh, uh, in the so-called uh, master gas system, which was an enormous uh, uh, investment to use the natural gas produced in Saudi Arabia to power the Saudi petrochemical industry and to use nat- natural gas uh, for, for, for the Saudis. And that was an enormous investment. I mean, many of these countries did one or the other diversification plan, what are called today, you know, there's a flourishing of agenda 2030 for Saudi Arabia, this and that. That was already done in the 1970s, except with a much greater role of the state than it is in these plans of today, whereby there's a lot of place for private actors. So the idea was it has to be government actors. And already by 1978, most of these over countries had commercial deficits. So, so much had they tried to invest uh, in, in diversification plans and so much were they dependent on imports. And, in, and obviously this boost had created a lot of problems in terms of the, 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 the harbors were the, 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 you know, the, the whole system of highways of transport was not prepared for this influx of goods that already in 1978, they were in deficit. This is just a little bit to rebalance the story of they've used all the money uh, for for investing it abroad uh, in, uh, in finance. And obviously at the same time, these leaderships uh, try to strengthen their place at least regionally by reinforcing uh, their respective uh, armies. But let's not forget that in 1975, so at the peak of its power, uh, OPEC managed to, to, you know, to make peace, if you will, between Iran and Iraq. So, so it was not necessarily conducive to a more conflictual world. I would also be careful in... Uh, identifying increasing oil revenues with the willingness to go to war as some uh, scientists, uh, you know, social scientists. So it's a bit more complex, I think, than, uh, than that. These diversification plans, even though on paper they might sound as a good idea, Venezuela did this plan called La Gran Venezuela, which was the idea you know, to build a steel sector and so on and so forth. Uh, it flooded with money certain sectors with the result that Venezuela itself, even though it was a big oil exporter, and ended up, ended up having debt, uh, which proved fatal uh, in, in the 1980s. So these massive development plans either because they were misconceived in certain cases or because that is not the right thing to do with an oil rent, ended up being problematic by by the end uh, of the 1970s.
as we discussed in the first part of our interview, OPEC was was from the beginning and enmeshed within broader developmentalist currents that were sweeping the post-colonial and third world. In the 1970s, as oil prices shot up, you write you write that OPEC sought to build alliances with typically poorer oil importing developing nations. On the one hand, those countries were allies in the struggle against former colonial masters to generally increase prices for commodity exports. But on the other hand, as oil consumers and poor poor oil consumers at that, they suffered from the rising price of oil. And you write that OPEC tried to build this alliance by redistributing resources to poor oil importing countries and also through this broader north-south dialogue, this idea to restructure really the entire global economy along the lines of a new international economic order or NIEO. What features of the global economic order were up for debate from the structure of the commodities market to the position of the dollar as the global reserve currency? And why did this project of OPEC third world solidarity ultimately fail? Was was it simply that the economic crises of the 1970s, stagflation followed by this third world debt crisis after Volcker hiked interest rates? Was it just that these economic crises made that solidarity impossible? Or, or in retrospect, were there contingencies in play that could have caused it all to play out differently? Yes. So... OPEC played a central role in this debate on a new international economic order. First of all, because it was a member of OPEC and Algeria in particular that launched the idea in January 1974 to have a UN General Assembly specifically devoted, and that would be the first General Assembly of the United States specifically devoted to the question of economy and development. And obviously did so to avoid an international economic debate that was centered on the problem of oil prices. So so the idea was, you know, let's discuss the broader issue of economy and development. Let's discuss finance. Let's discuss uh, debt. Let's discuss uh, sovereignty or natural resources. Uh, Let's discuss nationalizations. Let's discuss the price of raw materials. But the bottom line, if you will, of this so-called alliance, Kissinger called it the the, the unholy alliance between uh, oil exporting countries and, uh, and the rest of developing countries in the UN, is the fact that most of these third world countries were raw materials exporters. And OPEC was saying, hey, the problem isn't that we're paid too much for oil. The problem is that you're paid too little for copper and coffee and whatever else. Yeah, that's the idea. Not not only you're paid too little, but we created an organization that is able to, to a certain extent, deal with the price of this uh, critical natural resource. You are in a position where the price of copper, let's say, can go up by 20% one year and go down by 20% the next. So there is a problem of general prices of raw materials, which should, should increase 
the terms of trade should increase in general when compared to the price of manufacturers. But we also should find a way to stabilize these prices or at least have a negotiation table at the international level. And of course, these were ideas that already John Maynard Keynes had in Bretton Woods, that there should have been some form of international uh, organization that dealt also with the prices of commodities because they are so important in the in the global economy and for some countries, but nothing happened. And then comes OPEC, which says, no, let's now it's 73. We have demonstrated we can do things on the most important uh, uh, in terms of economic value, at least uh, natural resource in the world. Let's do the same for the rest. And the proposal in the new international economic order was, let's say, create a common fund for commodity to which every country, including industrialized countries, would contribute, which would stabilize the prices, create buffer stocks, uh, negotiate the prices of the various uh, uh, raw materials. And this was obviously very attractive from the point of view of many countries of the third world. And on top of that, uh, OPEC countries increased uh, very significantly their development aid to the point that they you know, it was a much larger share of their GDP than the share of GDP in development aid of industrialized countries. They contributed to the creation of IFAD in 1974, which was an organization for agricultural development. So the idea that you know, if you increase the price of oil, there will be problems also from the point of view of agricultural prices. So we have to do something to deal also with that. So, so the idea is that at least OPEC engaged with the issue of the crisis of the Bretton Woods regime and with the need for some form of global redistribution of wealth. This engagement lasted you know, it's hard to pick a date, but uh, it lasted until the end of the 1970s. But let's say with the war with, between Iran and Iraq, the, the internal problems of OPEC started to be bigger than its willingness to, to engage with, you know, potential allies in a third world that was by then facing numerous troubles. Those troubles only got worse as the third world debt crisis exploded, of, of course. And that was all a product of what you describe as the neoliberal counter revolution, the Anglo-American neoliberal counter revolution of the 1980s. And that sent the price of oil falling dramatically, which figures like Ronald Reagan claimed as this huge victory for the West and for capitalism. Reagan hailed the fall of oil prices as, quote, a triumph not of government, but of the free market, and not of political leaders, but of freedom itself. It was this repudiation of the notion that there was any limits at all to consumption and to the American way of life, and more specifically, this repudiation of President Carter, who, who had called for a more modest way of life in the face of the energy crisis in in his famous and then infamous 1979 so-called malaise speech even though at the very same time the volcker shock was sending american workers and unions into this huge crisis right alongside the heavily indebted third world you write quote the elections of margaret thatcher in great britain in 1979 and subsequently that of ronald reagan in the united states in 1980 
coincided with an effort to relaunch an Anglo-American energy order that would overcome the numerous constraints imposed by OPEC on energy consumption and, more broadly, on the international economy. We know the story of Reagan and Thatcher as as ushering in neoliberalism on the domestic level in, in the U.S. and the U.K. Why is it also important to understand this as a global, successful global counter-revolution against OPEC and, more generally, against the entire third world? Mm-hmm. Why is 1979 important? 1979 is a key year in many ways. As you pointed out, that's the time when basically the, the United States took a number of decisions that weirdly were taken, not by Ronald Reagan, but <laughs> under the Carter administration. The first of all is to start what was then called the decontrol of oil prices, meaning that oil prices in the United States would be allowed to increase in, in an effort to reduce oil consumption in the United States and the U.S., was the largest uh, oil importer in the world. So, so the control of prices in the United States would, would, would have allowed to reduce consumption in the United States. And at the same time, would have allowed companies to invest more in oil uh, within the United States or in Alaska or wherever. And uh, this would have uh, increased the supply of oil. And you know the combination of the two uh, would have reduced the power, in a way, of OPEC countries. Now, according to Carter, all of this had to go hand in hand with an increase in taxes to these uh, oil companies so that they could not make these enormous, what we call now extra profits or excess profits uh, and so on and so forth. The second decision, as you mentioned, is the increase in the, in, uh, in interest rates uh, you know, to 20%. So levels that were unheard of previously, which triggered the, the, the debt crisis in many countries of the third world, but also in oil exporting countries. And a symbol of this is Mexico. Mexico is at the same time the country where the debt crisis risked bringing down the entire financial system because it was the country that was more exposed to, 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 to external debt. But it had become a massive oil exporter in the late 1970s. So it was at the same time an oil exporter and one of the countries uh, at the epicenter of the debt crisis. So symbolizing, in a way, the weakening of oil exporters and the weakening of third world countries. And on top of this, if you want to say something more about the role of Mexico, it's also the place where the last diplomatic effort of this so-called North-South dialogue took place because it took place in Cancun in, in Mexico in 1981. So, so in many ways, uh, it's a symbolic country. When we talk about the role of Great Britain and the United States, it is worth pointing out that this role has to do with the history of carbon since the Industrial Revolutions, because these are the two countries that at the time were responsible for the far majority 
of the emissions from fossil fuels, uh, CO2 emissions of fossil fuels since the Industrial Revolution. And in a way, Great Britain represented the emergence of the age of coal. Still, uh, in the early 80s, uh, Great Britain was a massive uh, coal uh, producer. And the United States represented, obviously, not only the emergence of the the age of coal, but also the emergence of of the age of oil. So the economic role, the industrial role, also the role, if you will, in, in foreign policy of these two countries is deeply linked to their role uh, of fossil fuel producers. So it is obvious that their decisions would influence a world in which still fossil fuels were central to, to, to the industrial system, to economic growth and so on and so forth. And, and Margaret Thatcher, later looking back at Cancun, said, quote, We were not to know it at the time, but 1981 was the last year of the West's retreat before the axis of convenience between the Soviet Union and the Third World. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a bit, uh, obviously, of a Thatcherian uh, statement uh, in the sense that the so-called axis of convenience between the Soviet Union and the Third World was not as evident as... She thought, uh, in a way, uh, now that I'm thinking about it, we never actually mentioned the Soviet Union uh, as related to key decisions by by OPEC. And uh, obviously, Soviet technicians and the existence of the Soviet Union uh, did contribute to the oil industry, development of the oil industry in certain countries of OPEC, such as, for example, Algeria, such as, for example, Iraq. But it would be very hard to say that their decisions in the oil industry were driven uh, by a willingness to to serve the interests of the Soviet Union. I mean, these were nationalist governments that basically tried to serve whatever they thought were their their own interests. So so I think what Margaret Thatcher uh, really (laughs) was thinking with uh, with that statement is that that moment uh, was uh, a weakening uh, of the effort of third world countries to generate some kind of state-driven development. And maybe for Thatcher, any state-driven development was equated uh, with uh, communism, something that uh, smelled (laughs) of communism or of Soviet influence. And you write that the most consequential impact came, came not from Reagan here, but from Thatcher, who would, quote, you write, fight OPEC with a weapon that Reagan would not could not wield. And and that weapon was North Sea oil, which simultaneously allowed for the UK to do a number of things. One, undercut OPEC's control over the oil supply Two, privatize the commanding heights of the British economy and three crush the powerful British miners union. And and in doing all of this paved the way for the neoliberal restructuring of the entirety of the British economy, society, and politics. Lay that out for us. Why Why does Britain's North Sea oil play such a key role, not just to the triumph of neoliberalism in Britain, but also to its triumph in OPEC's defeat 
globally? Yeah, so what I would call the neoliberal re- regime that emerged uh, from from uh, the late 1970s. By regime, I, I would mean something that obviously occurred in different ways in, in most of the countries uh, in the world. Specifically, when it came to Great Britain, was very directly linked to the availability of North Sea oil. Uh, Margaret Thatcher was, in a way, lucky enough to be the first uh, uh, prime minister in the UK who would uh, be able to have a positive uh, oil balance in the sense that Britain became actually uh, an oil exporter and uh, a significant oil uh, exporter. And uh, in the context of high prices that generated a massive boost for the revenues of this British government. So first of all, this massive boost, even though weirdly North Sea oil revenues are never mentioned uh, in <laughs> the literature uh, that, uh, you know, not even in her memoirs, uh, uh, but in most of the literature that views uh, the Thatcher's revolution, that looks at Thatcher's revolution, those revenues were fundamental for Thatcher to be able to reduce taxation, uh, at least uh, on capital, because had not, uh, had she not been able to counterbalance reduction in taxes with high oil revenues, Britain's economy, which was in a pretty bad shape uh, at the end of the 1970s, would probably not have been able to uh, recover. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, the strongest enemy of actually both Labour and, uh, and uh, eventually Conservative governments uh, in the 70s, early 80s, was the strongest labor union uh, in Britain, which was the National Union of Mine Workers. And uh, if there was to be an effort to weaken uh, labor unions in general, it had to start with the strongest labor union uh, of them all, which was, uh, you know, it was very cohesive uh, with a very long history of uh, agitation and uh, a very strong re- reputation. And Thatcher decided to, 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 to wage war, basically, with, with, with the mine workers, um, you know, deciding to close down uh, a number of pits and reduce production. And the way oil helped is that some of the power stations that used to run only on coal were reconverted to be used only also on oil. And so the, 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 the mine workers by striking were not able to block uh, the energy system of Great Britain, also thanks to the, uh, to, to the help uh, of oil in the North Sea. And eventually, the end of that uh, quite epic battle between Thatcher uh, and the trade unions ended, as we know, with with a victory of Margaret Thatcher, which you know legitimized Thatcher as one of the most important, if if you will, leaders of the conservatives uh, around the world, a model for so many other countries and so many other politicians. 
even politicians, uh, if you will, not necessarily uh, of, uh, of the right. And finally, the energy sector, uh, and in particular uh, oil and gas, was also the sector in which uh, the first privatization was in, was, in, was telecom, the, the privatization of British telecom, but the, the, the privatizations uh, of the oil, uh, particularly of British petroleum and British gas, were by far, in terms of value, the most important privatizations uh, uh, in, uh, in Great Britain in the 1980s and allowed Thatcher to experiment with these uh, private governance. Great Britain had actually created a national oil company in 1975. So in 1975, it was still a world in which a country where there had not been any national oil companies uh, and was uh, basically led by these private oil companies, British Petroleum and Shell, or British Petroleum was participated by a government, uh, but run as a private company. So still in 1975, there was the creation of a national uh, oil company. And just a few years after Thatcher took her place in 79, she let go, she, she, she privatized British national oil company and then, and then British Petroleum with the intent of creating a so-called private or commercial governance of North Sea oil. This is important not only because, first of all, it, you know, the example of privatizations itself eventually became even that a model elsewhere. But since the North Sea oil was the most important new oil province in the world, by the 1980s, think that today Brent, that is a quality of North Sea oil, is the standard pricing for, for, for actually for most of the non-US oil. She was able to present the, the, the governance of North Sea, which basically zeroed uh, royalties uh, uh, with very low taxation, with uh, very favorable investments for private business as a model that should be applied elsewhere in the world. And obviously it goes without saying that this approach is an approach that favored uh, a scenario of low prices and of opposition towards OPEC's effort to control the, the, the oil market. You write, quote, Reagan inherited from Carter an increased military engagement in the Gulf. This was a relatively new development. Remember, the U.S. had been forced to withdraw from the Saudi Dharan airbase in 1962. That effectively sealed the U.S. replacement of Britain as the key Western military power in the region. While before 1979, the U.S. could count on two key allies in the Gulf, the twin pillars of Iran and Saudi Arabia, as enshrined in the Nixon Doctrine, over the course of the following decade, it was forced to rely primarily on the Saudis, thus offering virtual unconditional support to the House of Saud in the name of the struggle against global communism. And you note, citing Andrew Basevich, that before 1980, no U.S. soldiers had died in the Middle East, whereas after 1980, the vast majority of U.S. soldier deaths have taken place in the region. Why did the U.S. military presence in the Gulf deepen so profoundly at that moment? And... 
how how was it that that moment laid the groundwork for the decades of war that have murderously destabilized the Middle East through the present day, starting with the U.S. and Gulf state backed Iraqi war against Iran. And then not long after the U.S. and Gulf state backed war against Iraq in response to Iraq's invasion of Kuwait. These these, of course, were real life shooting wars, but they also involved, as you write, quote, Arab producers turning the oil weapon against each other. It is a fact what uh, Bashevich writes. It, it's a fact that after 1979, the Persian or Arab Gulf becomes the place where there is, you know, the vast majority of uh, U.S. troops are killed uh, and, and, and fight. This process starts actually with Carter uh, in 1979 with the necessity of creating a... Because there was no way to intervene rapidly in the Gulf with the creation of a rapid reaction force uh, that would uh, counter what was perceived as uh, you know, a potentially destabilizing influence of the Soviet Union uh, from Afghanistan to the Horn of Africa. And obviously, eventually, as a reaction to the revolution in, in Iran. So... That's where an increasing U.S. involvement starts. But then I would be careful to state two things. It's obviously important to emphasize the role that cooperation in the oil sector has and and avoiding instability is obviously an important uh, part of the calculation of the U.S. government, but that's not never the only reason uh, uh, why U.S. government uh, uh, has intervened in the Persian Gulf, and I, I mean, just uh, you would suggest uh, you know, the listeners to to refer to the Oil Powers by Victor McFarland or by the books by Bob Vitalis, Oilcraft. I mean, they they try to explain uh, in in a deeper detail how this peculiar alliance which is never, it's, it's, it was never formalized between the United States and Saudi Arabia has seen the light. And second, I think, even though I've not studied this in detail, obviously the increasing military intervention of the U.S. in the Persian Gulf has a lot to do with the end of the Cold War and of a broader quest to, first of all, you know, forget the defeat, first military defeat of the U.S. Uh, Army in Vietnam, and of a larger project uh, of a new international order uh, that would be an order, in a way, driven uh, by, by 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 the West that became possible only from the beginning of from the late eighties, early nineties, but was not conceivable yet, I think, in the early 80s, basically in the early Reagan years. You know, the the discourse was probably there, but it was a different world, one where still there were different actors and uh, the U.S. probably did not have the capability or the possibility to to do what would happen with the bombing of Iraq in uh, in 1991. You write, quote, 
In this struggle for state sovereignty over natural resources, OPEC countries, especially through increasing state control over their key industry, have been so successful that the oft-repeated representation of raw materials producers from the developing countries simply as being pillaged throughout the 20th century by industrialized countries and avid corporations has more to do with the realm of myth than that of historical reality. On the other hand, being successful in taking over a key industrial sector is not the same as avoiding the trap of dependence, as being able to resist a massive influx of money and avoiding the over-exploitation of a country's natural resources. What does the story you tell reveal about about these arguments around the so-called resource curse? After after reading your book, it seems to me like the problem with this argument is, is that it places the blame on the resources— rather than on the structure of a capitalist world system that benefits some countries and some people and some entities with resources while severely punishing others. Yeah, I think the, 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 the problem with the idea of the resource course is that obviously uh, it is a useful tool uh, in, in political science if you, if you want to debate on, on, on models, but it's not terribly useful uh, uh, in dealing with, with, with the history of natural resource uh, exporters. Uh, I think basically it's an ex post explanation. So until uh, things go well, so let's say until the 1970s, when these countries were among the countries that were doing better in the economies, nobody spoke of a resource course. Then uh, in the late 80s, when a lot of these countries start having problems, political scientists come up with the resource curse. Then it disappears again uh, when the prices are high in the middle of the 2000s. And then it reappears when the price crash. And then today that the, the prices are quite high, uh, you know, not a lot of people actually talks about the resource curse, but everybody actually wants, uh, I don't know, Chile to produce more lithium. So, so, so I, I think it's a concept that is more useful for, for political scientists in universities than it is to understand the history. And as you mentioned, history is more complex and what we should be looking at is diverse historical phases where countries do different things. Raw materials exporters and natural resource exporters do uh, different things. I think if you, if, you, if you want a definition that I liked at least is that the definition of Juan Pablo Vérez Alfonso. So Juan Pablo Vérez Alfonso says that the oil industry is a global minotaur. So the problem is that it once a country finds itself in the position of being a significant exporter of a, of a very coveted natural resource. Then you have mo- both benefits and problems and to tame the global minotaur uh, is, is, is very different. So it takes a lot of political engagement, cultural engagement, intellectual engagement, and so on and so forth. And in different times, these countries have been successful or not, but I think it would be very wrong. And that is a danger I perceived in my own conversations with people from uh, these countries. It would be wrong for the, for the elites, for the technocrats, for the people 
of oil exporting countries to forget the successes they had in their history. And there is a very concrete risk that they do and that they get narrated another story, which is uh, exactly the story of the resource course, because none of the people that, 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 that normally endorse the idea of the resource course ask natural resource exporters to block exports. Very rarely they do. In the end, what they argue is, you know, export that stuff, but get less money out of it, which is weird. What they should do is that they should know the story of their countries, know the successes they had, know the mistakes and know the, you know, the dangers uh, of the global minotaur, including the ecological dangers. You know, most of these countries are suffering from climate change much more than uh, countries in the so-called global north. So if you live in Abu Dhabi, you know that that's an unlivable place in terms of, of weather. So you're actually leaving climate change. I think they should be proud of some of the achievements and at the same time they should engage with an issue that at times they engage with, but that is you know, so relevant to the people uh, of these countries. Oil has obviously continued to play a key role in the global economy and geopolitics since, you know, the neoliberal counter-revolution that you really end your, the, the bulk of your book with. And a number of examples come to mind. The rise of Chavez in Venezuela, to the destruction of Venezuela's economy under Maduro, the the remaking of Saudi Arabia and the the Middle Eastern order more generally under Mohammed bin Salman, China's economic rise, and of course Russia's invasion of Ukraine and Ukraine's NATO-backed war against the Russian invasion. We've discussed the role of oil during the rise of Fordist capitalism and then during the neoliberal counter-revolution. What role? And I know this is a big question even by the standards of my podcast. What role did oil play during the heyday of neoliberalism? And then what role has it played during this long period of neoliberal crisis we've experienced? A period that some might argue is really perhaps a a nascent post-neoliberal order. Uh, so the easiest way to answer is that from 1980 to today, we have witnessed an enormous expansion globally of the use of, of all fossil fuels, uh, weirdly, even of coal. So there's not been a decline in, in, in the use of any of, of the key fossil fuels that are responsible for climate change. That is a legacy of the so-called neoliberal order. So had there been a possibility to change a development model with the energy shocks of the 1970s, we know this has not happened from 1980 to the financial crisis of 2007, 2008, and possibly not even until the COVID crisis. So the neoliberal oil and energy order against OPEC now creates concrete obstacles 
to confronting and adapting to climate change on anything approaching just terms or basically necessary terms. So, so, so yes, I mean, this, if we lived in this era of, of, of neoliberal regime, that has gone in parallel with, with, with increasing uh, emissions. So in, you know, massively <laughs> and, and, and that's in aggravating all the efforts that are needed to reduce CO2 uh, emissions. Obviously, I would argue that if there were parts of the world in which the recipes of standard neoliberal policies in terms of reduction of the, the role of the state, uh, favorable climate for, for private investments, were not applied fully, one was certainly China, but the other, the other countries were open countries. None of these countries eventually privatized the oil sector. Think about Saudi Arabia. It sold a very small share of Saudi Aramco, but it's still fully in control of Saudi Aramco. Even in Russia, whereby the efforts was to replicate in Russia the North Sea. So, so let's create uh, this new favorable uh, province for investments in natural resources from natural gas to oil to gold. You know, we know that eventually Putin appeared and <laughs> it did not apply when it came to natural resources, exactly the recipes that were, that were favored by uh, so-called uh, uh, neoliberals. So in a way, there were areas of resistance to that particular set of policies, but generally speaking, it has favored an increasing role played by fossil fuels and uh, increasing uh, emissions. But what is interesting to me is that obviously there is no denying that since the COVID crisis, we are talking everywhere in the most industrial countries about decarbonization. And when everybody is talking about it and implementing policies to move in that direction, that is a direction. You know, the, the question is who's going to benefit from it and how fast are we moving in that direction? But that's the direction we're moving in. You know, there's a whole set of questions that are raised on new energy exporters of critical minerals, but we're kind of engaged in a new world in which possibly even the consumption of oil globally has peaked to 100 million barrels a day. It's not clear that it will move upwards. This change, from my point of view, changes the rules of the game because we had a game where the idea was more or less there will be a global increase in, uh, in extraction of, uh, of these carbon resources. And the problem is, uh, you know, who, who's going to benefit from it. And now the game is a game about reducing production uh, of fossil fuels, the problem being uh, CO2 emissions. So this is, this is a very different game to which uh, oil exporting countries, are, I don't think they're necessarily equipped right now intellectually, culturally, and politically to deal with. And the largest oil consumers, to me, are underplaying the potential reaction of oil exporters. 
thinking that you know we can simply use less and less oil and the others will not react in any way. They have ways to react. Different so, forms and ways of to react, uh, but one way to react is you know simply reducing the price by so much that that would decelerate decarbonization. So I think that's, you know, we're entering a different world in which not necessarily both key policymakers in consuming countries and in producing countries are intellectually and culturally equipped to, to, to deal with. In many ways, OPEC being the most successful example of international cooperation of natural resource exporters from different areas of the world. You know, it's also a, a model or, or a reference point of the new natural resource exporters for a new energy system that is decarbonized uh, and uh, largely based on uh, electrification and needs new and different energy sources such as, you know, cobalt, lithium and so on and so forth. So that example remains in a way relevant, even in a different game, in a different scenario, in, in the world of decarbonization, if you will. Well, Giuliano Garavini, thank you very much. Jay, thanks a lot for having me. And I look forward to listening to the next episode. That was the second of a two-part interview on the history of OPEC with Giuliano Garavini, who teaches international history at Roma Tre University in Rome. He's the author of After Empires, European Integration, Decolonization, and the Challenge from the Global South, 1957 to 1986, and The Rise and Fall of OPEC in the 20th Century. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that capitalist production only develops the technique and the degree of combination of the social process of production by simultaneously undermining the original sources of all wealth, the soil, and the worker. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. We are recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theo Real Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it's on iTunes or another such site, please rate and review the pod. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling friends to check out this pod. Please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. 